Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, and no, I never tire of quoting this one, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You will find rest for your souls. Jesus says, in me, I am the key. You will find rest for your souls. Jeremiah chapter six, verse 16. Thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. And so we come to discover that the ancient paths speak of the ancient of days, Jesus Christ, who is our rest. Isaiah 28, verse 12, he said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary, and here is repose. But they wouldn't listen. That's always the indictment. It's not that the word wasn't spoken, it's that the followers wouldn't listen. It's not that the rest hasn't been offered, it's that we don't receive it. Did the Israelites learn anything in the wilderness? And have we? We've been in the wilderness with them. Oh, we didn't suffer like they did. Some of you might question that in the long teaching, but that's okay. We, we didn't go through what they did, but we've walked this out now. From Exodus through Leviticus into Numbers. Now we're at Numbers 33. We will finish the book on Wednesday night, Lord willing. But in this chapter, we come back to consider all the stops along the way. Did they learn from it? Are they prepared by it and through it? Are they answering to God? Will they walk in it? And of course, the more relevant question is, will we? Will we take these things and live by them? And if you're just hearing or here for the first time this morning, you're saying, well, I didn't walk this out. Then I say, go back and walk it out. But you'll get a taste of it today, I believe. My brother Ron just got back from a three-week vacation, I guess you could call it, uh, more of an adventure down down to the Southern California coast and all the way up the coast of California. And he, he loves, he's an adventurer. Ron really is. He's a nut about these things. He likes to search out and find bizarre places. You know, out of the way places that nobody else goes to see because no one even knows they're there. He drove up, he went to Morro Bay and San Simeon and Big Sur and Carmel, Monterey, Mendocino. But along the way, he left Highway 1 a number of times where he had to take his four-wheel drive vehicle out and put it into four-wheel drive just to get where he needed to go, and then park it and, and hike several more miles, and, and he had some really interesting experiences there, but there was one place in particular, a remote trek. It was a four-wheel drive dirt road along cliffs dropping 400 feet just to his left. Now, remember, this is the Southern California. This is, this is now west of Highway 1, and if you recall last year, parts of Highway 1 washed out. So what is he doing? I don't know. He's completely insane. But then he had to park, and he went another three- to four-mile hike along a place known as the Lost Coast of California, and ultimately he came to his destination, the Punta Gorda Lighthouse. Now, how many of you have been to the Punta Gorda Lighthouse? See, I go to California, and it's Disneyland. <laughs> you know, the prefab, all done for me, walk in, they've got food, they have everything I need, including shade, you know. He finds the Punta Gorda White Lighthouse, built in 1915, decommissioned in 1951, because it was too remote. They couldn't get people out there to live there to keep the lighthouse going, 
Definitely a lost and lonely find. Well, Ron came over Monday night of this last week, and he had all these pictures on his iPhone, dozens and dozens of pictures from his trip, and he was so excited to share and so excited to, to, to show it to us, so he, he airplayed them on our TV. Have you done that yet? I'm just, I'm fascinated, because I am so, the older I get, the less tech I understand. And he, you know, flipped it up on our TV, so we're watching. Airplay, by the way, is, is this generation's answer to slideshows. Let me explain, because some of you may not know what, what slideshows are. They, they used to have these things. It was called film, and it was like a tiny picture, and they put a little cardboard frame around it, and you could drop these, these little slides in a carousel, not like a carousel, a carousel, that, and set it on a projector. You know what's funny to me? We started using projectors to project the words from songs in my youth group back in the 90s. We were cutting edge. <laughs> anyway, that's the way we used to do it. You ever go to one of those family vacation slideshows where someone says, hey, we're back from the trip. Sit down. We got to show you this. And you're like, <laughs> <laughs> and you got to suffer through the whole thing. Our mission slideshows, those are fun. You know, you have no idea what they're talking about. Well, anyway. That's Numbers 33. That, that's a good picture, if you will, of Numbers 33. It is a Kodachrome slideshow of a family journey. Numbers 33 is a travel log. We go through site by site by site across 40 years in the wilderness. 42 campsites are listed here. 18 of them are whereabouts unknown. They're like the Punta Gorda Lighthouse. We have no idea where they were. People have tried to guess and, and point to a map. Oh, we think it's here, we think it's there. And the truth is, when you consider the journey of the Israelites from Egypt, across the Red Sea, to Mount Horeb, the Mount of God, and then finally up to the plains of Moab, we really don't know the exact trek. I have my suspicions, my guesses of where they actually crossed the Red Sea, how that worked. There are so many ideas out there and we don't know because there are a number of places that simply are no longer known, but I'll tell you what, these, know, these were known to Moses. These were known to the people of Israel and they would be able to look back over this list of stops, at least this generation of Israel, they could look back and they could see these stops and, and they, would, they would be memory devices. We're told here in verse two that Moses wrote down, he wrote down in this travel log, uh, the word recorded in verse two, yiktob, Moses recorded, he wrote down the whole thing. This is his journal. This is Moses saying we went here and then we went here and then we went here and the Lord commanded him to do it. Has God ever commanded you to keep a journal? It's not a bad idea. It actually can be really helpful for faith because you can look and see where you've been and what you've done, and I could have gone that direction this morning, but we're gonna stay on track here. Understand this, verse two is one of two times that specifically uh, here have so far ascribed the text to Moses. Until we get into Deuteronomy, we see Exodus 17, 14, the Lord said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Exodus 17, 14, maybe the earliest recorded journal writing in history. And then here in Numbers 33, verse two, Moses wrote down, recorded their starting places according to their journeys. So we, we have a sense, we know, okay, Moses is the scribe of Torah. The higher critics, the newer critics go after that. They try to say, no, there's no way Moses could have written it. The Torah is compiled of several different documents all pulled together by some guy writing at a later date, and I completely disagree. 
Jesus himself said in Luke 16, 31, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. As far back as we know, Jewish tradition calls Torah Moses, the books of Moses. And Jesus ascribed it to Moses. Anyway, my brother found that old lighthouse by reading travel journals. He never would have known it was there. I never knew it was there. And a lot of the stops that he found, he found by going online and finding people's travel journals, those who have traveled up and down the California coast, you could say those travel journals helped him find his way, and that's the great thing about travel logs. You don't have to know the way, you just have to know that someone knows the way. And, and follow what the log says. You don't have to stress about where you're going or how to get there because someone else has already gone there. Just follow the map. And so again, for Moses, as he writes this down, every site listed in this chapter would be connected to a memory, to an experience. But it's far more than that. For you and for me this morning, it is a trail of teaching. This journey of the Israelites and there are touch points of faith throughout this chapter. So we're, I'm gonna give you a few. I'm gonna try and draw out some truth principles, truths from the travelogue this morning, and I'm sure there are many more. And if you come up with one, that's fantastic. Keep thinking it through. I love when people come up, up to me after teaching, they say, you had seven points, but really there's an eighth, and they tell me what the point is, and I'm like, why did you tell me that now? <laughs> tell me before I start teaching, so we can all hear. But there's a lot that you can draw out, but, but let's review this journey before we finish out Numbers. Verse three, they journey from Ramses. Remember Ramses? It's in Egypt. In the first month, on the 15th day of the first month, on the next day after the Passover, the sons of Israel started out boldly in the sight of all the Egyptians while the Egyptians were burying their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them. The Lord had also executed judgments on their gods. Ramses means child of the sun, the sun god of Egypt, Ra. And so Ramses is child of the sun. And I'm, by the way, I'll give you the meaning of every single one of these places as we go through here. And you might wanna just jot them to the side. You don't have to, it's not, not that big a deal. But, but I wanna point some things out by these interesting names that we see throughout the chapter. But we know that 10 plagues took place. We know the death of the firstborn and the plundering of Egypt. And yes, the Israelites went boldly where no one had gone before. Boldly in the sight of all Egypt. I mean, this was mighty Egypt. Egypt and the Hittites were the two greatest world powers of the day. And the Israelites marched right out of there, the Bible says, boldly. Why? Because God went before them. Because God had proven, had shown himself, not only to the Israelites, but to the Egyptians, and he had denigrated all of their gods with a small g, all of their idols, on the way out the door. So they went their journeys, and verse five says the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses and camped in Sukkot. Sukkot is tent town. Tent town, Sukkot just means tents. And so they camped out, and they were a massive tent town there in the wilderness. It says they journeyed from Sukkot, verse six, and they camped in Atom. I love the name of Atom, it means with them, with them. Boldly in the face of Ramses, now to tent town, and God was with them, which is on the edge of the wilderness. 
So as they're veering into or leaning into the wilderness, they're reminded, we're reminded God was with them. And they journeyed from Etam. They turned back, which doesn't necessarily mean backwards. It can also mean a, a different direction from where they were going. We believe they were heading south, and to turn back, at least in the language, perhaps they just at that point started heading dead east. But they turned back, and it says they went to Pihahirot, which means mouth of the caves, which faces Baal Zephon, god of the north, and they camped before Migdal Tower. And this is that location where the Israelites were hemmed in before the Red Sea. The Red Sea before them, massive mouths of caves and towers of rock around them. And the only way back, they were being attacked or chased by the uh, Egyptian army, right? They journeyed from before Hahirot and they passed through the Red Sea, through the midst of the sea into the wilderness. So verse eight, that's the crossing of the Red Sea. And they went three days journey in the wilderness of Etam and camped at Mara. Mara meaning bitter. Remember the story in Exodus 15. They camped at that place that was called Mara because they were so thirsty and all there was was bitter water. If you can imagine, see we're not used to this heat here in Washington state. Boy, it crests 80 degrees and we're just going, you know. My daughters, Anna Marie and Naomi, are just loving it. They're like, this is living. This is, we're just going. And there was no water to drink but bitter water. Remember what God told him to do? He said, Moses, I want you to take that tree and throw it into the water. It's the tree that makes the bitter water sweet. What a beautiful picture as the cross makes our bitterness sweet. And so there at Marah they camped and they journeyed from the wilderness of sin Verse 12, or they journeyed from the Red Sea to the wilderness of, of, where am I? Oh, no, verse nine. They journeyed from Mara, and they came to Elim. And in Elim, Elim means palms. And in Elim, there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, so good name for Elim. And they camped there. And then they journeyed from Elim, and they camped by the Red Sea. So they come back toward the Red Sea, and they will several times in their journey. They don't just go through it and head on. They are in the wilderness where the Red Sea is going to be near to them. So they camp back by the Red Sea. Verse 11, they journey from the Red Sea and they camped in the wilderness of Sin. Verse 12, by the way, Sin means thorns. So they went and camped in the thorny wilderness. They journeyed from the wilderness of thorns and they camped at Dovka. Dovka means knocking, knocking. And they journey from Dovka and they camped at Alush. I like this name, Alush. It means I will need bread. It's not I need bread, I'm hungry. It's I need, I will make bread. Guess what? At Alush, they started to receive manna. Manna. They named the place I will need bread because they had all they needed to make bread. They had the manna on the ground and they could gather it and start making bread of, of all kinds there at Alush, verse 13. And verse 14, they journeyed from Elush, and they came and camped at Rephidim. Rephidim means resting place. Now it was there that the people had no water to drink. And you may recall at resting place at Rephidim, God said, Moses, strike the rock. These people need a place to rest, and they need water, and I've given them bread, and now the rock must be struck so the water can flow. And so he struck the rock in the same way Christ the rock was struck at Calvary. And living water flows. They journeyed from Rephidim, verse 15. They camped in the wilderness of Sinai, which means thorny. The wilderness of sin and the wilderness of Sinai both mean thorny. One is thorns, one is thorny. 
So it's just the way the word is spelled. Verse 16, they journeyed from the wilderness of Sinai and they camped at Kibrot Hatava, graves of greed, graves of greed. Remember, they wanted meat. The bread was not enough. We gotta have us some meat. So they got meat till it was coming out their nostrils, the Bible tells us. Many people died at that point at graves of greed. Verse 17, they journeyed from Kibrot Hatava and camped at Hatzerot. Hatzerot means settlement. Okay, they journeyed from Hatzerot and they camped at Ritmah, which means heath or, or wasteland. And they journeyed from Ritmah and they camped at Ramon Perez, which means pomegranate of the breach. So clearly somebody found a pomegranate tree there somewhere. Pomegranate of the breach, and they journeyed from there, and they camped at Libna, verse 20. That means pavement of the poplars. They journeyed from Libna, and they camped at Risa, which means ruin. They, they journeyed from ruin, and they camped at Kehalatha, which means assembly. And they journeyed from Kehalatha, and they camped at Mount Shafer, beauty. Well, that's a beautiful mountain, so they just called the place beauty. And they journeyed from Mount Shafer, and they camped at Haradah, which means fear. They journeyed from Haradah, and they camped at Machalot, which means great assembly. They journeyed from Machalot, and they camped at Tahat, which means station. They journeyed from Tahat and camped at Terah, stopping place. They journeyed from stopping place, and they camped, verse 28, at Mithka, which means sweetness. They journeyed from Mithka, and they camped at Hashmonah, fatness. They journeyed from fatness, and they camped at Masarot, which means bonds, bonds. And they journeyed from Masarot, and they camped at Beneyakan, which means sons of twisting. Interesting. They journeyed from the sons of twisting, and they camped, camped and by the way, Beneyakan, it could be something as simple as the acacia trees that were all twisted in the wilderness. They went, oh, that's like sons of twisting. And so they named it that. And they moved from there, camped from the journey from there, and camped at Hor Hagidgad, which means cavern of Gidgad. I don't know who Gidgad is. Nobody has any idea. They journeyed from Hor Hagidgad and they camped at Yotpata, which means pleasantness. They journeyed from pleasantness and camped at Abrona, passage, passage. They journeyed from Abrona and camped at Etzian Geber, which means. Really cool, it means backbone of a strong man. Backbone of a strong man. Backbone of the mighty, you might say. Etzian Geber, note this in your Bibles, has a different name today, it's Elat. Elat. If you've traveled to Israel, you know that is the southernmost city in Israel. It is right at the tip of the Red Sea. And what's interesting about the name, backbone of a mighty one, backbone of a strong man, is you could say that's really right at the tailbone of the nation of Israel. So it's an interesting name to call it backbone of a strong man, Etzian Geber or Elat today. Verse 36, they, they journey from Etzian Geber and they camped in the wilderness of Zin, that is Kadesh. And Kadesh, you know, means holy. Kadesh Barnea is the holy desert of a fugitive. But Kadesh by itself, Kadesh, in the Hebrew language is, is holy. So some truths from a travelogue, some things to jot down and note. Number one, it is always a journey from Egypt to holiness. It is always a journey from Egypt to the place where one is actually holy. From Ramses to Kadesh, it's always a journey. 
Now, some of you know this, and maybe it's kind of an obvious, but it is always a journey from the world to the place of the sanctified. And the reason I mention this is we have to remember God alone is holy. God's the only one who is intrinsically, by nature, holy. He just is holy. He's always been holy. He is holy now. He always will be holy. That's who God is. You are not. I am not, by nature, holy. My nature is a sin nature. And I have to journey from where I am to get to where holiness is. It is the work of sanctification along the path of our lives. Now, again, that's not news to most of you. But I bring it up because I wonder, why are we still surprised when we have not yet arrived? Why are we surprised when we haven't arrived? Why do we shake our fists at ourselves? Why do we look at ourselves and go, come on, man. You were doing so well, and now you're doing so horribly. Why does this surprise us? It is a journey to holiness. It's like Paul crying out, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? And then he remembers, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to explain, though I would be dead in my sins, I'm alive in Christ. He goes on to explain that the law reminds me of my sinfulness and my flesh, but, but the Lord has brought me into salvation so that I am not condemned, but also sanctification so that he's working on me. I'm on the journey from the world to Kadesh. And as long as I'm drawing breath, as we've been talking about, I am not yet to Kadesh. I am not yet the Holy One that I long to be in Jesus. I pursue holiness, but I am not holy in, in my mind, in my behavior. I, I'm holy by the blood of Jesus. Don't get me wrong. And it's that awesome dichotomy of our faith that we are at the same time viewed as holy by the blood of Christ, even while we are being made holy by the work of the Holy Spirit. Both are the dynamic of our lives. But remember the, the phrase Jesus quoted from Jeremiah 6.16, you shall find rest for your souls. You shall find rest for your souls. All that I can lay claim to on this journey of faith is his finished work. And so I can rest in that and not strive over it. And that doesn't mean when I sin, I don't just go, ah, no problem, I'm just being made holy. It just means that while I struggle and when things go wrong in this life and I make stupid, foolish human choices, I know I can turn to Jesus and I can rest in him because he's working on me. He is making me like him. When I trust in Jesus, he becomes my refidim. He becomes my resting place, even in the midst of the wilderness, even while I'm on the journey from Egypt, the world, to Kadesh, holiness. He's my resting place. Hebrews 4, verse 3 says, for we who have believed enter that rest. It's not we who have overcome. We who have conquered. We who have memorized every one of the verses on our little list. It's we who have believed enter that rest. Remember, for every follower of Jesus, no single achievement or success of ours gets to holiness. It is a journey, which is why Paul wrote in Philippians 2.10, were his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would do what? Anyone know? 
walk in them. Are you with me? God prepared the works for us to walk in. So it's the journey of holiness from Egypt to Kadesh. It's not our bright, shining moments of victory even. It's the long, slow walk of faithfulness that God calls us to. Don't be discouraged, brothers and sisters, along the way. It's a long journey, the walk to the place of holiness, which is why Jesus told suffering Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. You hang in there. You hang in there. Keep that in mind, and don't be discouraged in the long seasons. Just keep walking. I, I just briefly told Les and Jake that before we started. The thing I hear over and over from the Lord is, don't quit, don't give up, keep walking. Yeah, but Lord, but what about when this happens? Don't give up, you be faithful to me. Yeah, but what if this, you keep walking. So the first thing just to note then is it's always a journey from Egypt to holiness. Secondly, though, note this, and it's so comforting, God remembers every step of the track. Everyone. How many of you can detail all the sights and stops of your life? All the significant places where God really did a work on your heart. Can you look back and detail every one? I'm sure you could come up with a few. Like Jackie's Aunt Ruby would be, every visit of hers would be a, a highly significant moment for my sister. And you can jot that down in the journal. Stops where God sent a messenger to bring rest to your heart. But how many of us can really go back over our lives and go, well, I remember here and here and here and here and here. Remember what God did at every single one of those places? I don't. Just being honest, I don't. You can look back at exciting places. I mean, right here for the Israelites, exciting places like the mouth of the caves at the Red Sea. Oh, yeah, we remember that. That was awesome. See, some of this next generation of Israel, they were children walking through the Red Sea. If you've ever seen the artist renditions of that, I love those pictures of little kids pointing up as a whale is swimming by on the <laughs> wall of water. How cool is that? And the dad's just going, keep walking, just keep walking, you know? So those momentous, amazing moments, absolutely. What about the chilling climbs in our lives like bitterness or graves of greed or ruin? Yeah, we probably can remember a few of those. What about the boring outposts? Did you notice some of the names in here? Settlement, <laughs> wasteland, station, sta stopping place. It's like when you're driving along the road and you see the little blue sign that says rest stop ahead which, by the way, we use more often now than we ever used to. Who cares? It's that resting place, but it was one of the sites. Guess what? God remembered the boring places that no Israelite would even care to think about. It was just another campsite, not to God, because, see, he was central in that campsite. His spirit rested in that campsite. His glory was in the midst of resting place or station or settlement. He was still there. And I'm talking about those times in our lives where we don't even think about God being present because it's just so boring. Nothing's happening. He's there. He's there. He remembers them all. Every step of the trek, he is patiently present. Think, think about it this way. Look at the biblical Bible log. This whole thing is a Bible log, by the way. It's a travel log. 
a travel log from start to finish, and it starts Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He was there. And then the very middle verse of Scripture, Psalm 118, verse 8, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. He's right there. And then you get to the very end of the Scriptures. Yes, I am coming quickly, Revelation 22, verse 20. Amen, come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. He was there at the beginning. He's right there in the middle. He's there at the end. This is a travel log a journal for our journey to remind us that every step of the way, even in the midst of Second Chronicles where we're reading names and going, why is this important? He's right there. By the way, I'll just take this moment to say if it's in this travel log, it's important. If it's here in the scriptures, there's a reason God put it here, which is why we are intent in moving through the Bible. It began with him, it trust flows through him, it will end with him. He never loses track of where you've been. I love that. He knows every stopping place. He knows, by the way, every failure as well. All the mistakes and crashes and burns and problems of my life and my journey, he's aware of that. He, he was there through that and he's still here with me. I don't get it. But God is present. He knows where you've been, where you are, and where you are going. Listen to this. This is Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 11. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search out for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep. And I will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in a good pasture and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel and there they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. And while he's saying these very things through the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel is prophesying from Babylon. They're not even in the land. They're cast out from the land. The land is destroyed. The temple is nothing but ashes, and Ezekiel is teaching this from Babylon. God knows what he's doing. He's there for every step of the journey. Ashley, in his commentary, said, the motif of the journey of life is a powerful one in the Bible, and it is helpful at all points throughout the journey, but especially toward its end to look back and reflect. By the way, that's where we are. Here at the end of our journey, we can look back and reflect. We open the word to look back and reflect and to receive these touch points of faith that then encourage our faith not to stop walking until we arrive at the final destination. Ashley also said, this supposedly bare list of site names is a device to help the people of God remember that any at least of this generation of Israel could look back over the scroll of numbers and come to this section and go, oh yeah, remember this, remember this? And they could tell their children and their children's children, oh boy, when we stopped at settlement, it seemed so boring to everybody else, but that's where I first learned how to blow a bubble when I was chewing gum. I mean, it could share all kinds of things. It was memory for them that would encourage faith. God remembers every step of the trek, but I'm gonna add one to that, uh, to this whole idea of God helping the people remember. He also has all of this to help the people forget. 
what? Listen, God, for all his all-knowing, all-powerful, absolutely perfect memory, God is also, can I say this, forgetful. He's forgetful. Not like you and me. When I see one of you in the foyer and you say, hey, Rick, and I go, hey, you. <laughs> you don't know my name, do you? Sure I do. Partner? <laughs> God is forgetful in a very special way. He is forgetful of things forgiven. All things forgiven. When it's forgiven, but see, we have that phrase, forgive and forget. Well, we can forgive, but we don't forget. I've forgiven you to the point that, you know, I'm still holding a little something back in case I need it. I've forgiven, but I still remember, and I hate that I still remember. God forgives and forgets. It's gone. He lets it go. It's amazing. There is no direct mention anywhere, note this, anywhere in Numbers 33, there is no direct mention of failure. No mention of their faithlessness. Not a comment about sin. Nothing. God forgets. In fact, from verses 36 to 37, and you might want to note this in your Bibles, we will jump 38 years. 38 years from one verse to the next. God's gracious edits, if you will, of this wilderness journey. He doesn't even mention what happened in the 38 years. Well, what happened? Well, we'll mention it. Because we remember, we read this, no mention of the failure of the 10 out of 12 spies or the people's rebellion or their foolish foray into to try and take the promised land till they were driven back to Horma, which means devoted to destruction, and they were wiped out, not completely, but they were taken back seriously. Not a word here about Korah's rebellion and the fallout from that, the subsequent groaning and grumbling against Moses and Aaron. Nothing in here about Moses striking the second rock when he was supposed to speak to the second rock so the living water would flow. Complete silence in this chapter on the biting serpents and the compromising sexual idolatry at Baal Peor, God doesn't mention him at all. We were just here, 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 and here. Yeah, but what about ha what happened there, Lord? And here, 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 and he's just going on. Not a mention of sin or failure. And suddenly in verse 37, they journeyed from Kadesh and camped at Mount Hor at the edge of the land of Edom. Mount Hor means hill mountain. So I guess maybe a smallish Mount Hill Mountain is Mount Hor. But here we are at this place, and the Lord forgets every failure on the way. That is good news. Because I remember, I remember mine. Do you forget your forgiven failures? I wish that I did. I'm afraid I remember far too many failures that I have repented of and I have confessed before the Lord and I know he's forgiven me because he's faithful and yet I still remember. And the devil loves to bring that stuff up, doesn't he? Oh, I know you're forgiven, but think about what you did. Do you remember what you did? Sinner. And I remember that stuff. It's still in my brain. You know what? Time to let some of that go this morning. God has forgotten all that he has forgiven in your life and mine. Let it go. That stuff has no claim on you. Bring it up to the Lord. Lord, I just want to apologize one more time for blah, blah, blah. And he says, I'm sorry, I have no record of that. 
because he forgets every failure along the way. The prophet Micah, chapter seven, verse 18, who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. That phrase, unchanging love, chesed in the Hebrew, grace. He delights in grace. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread underfoot our iniquities. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and grace to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. I will give you truth, Jacob, and Abraham, grace. Grace and truth, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth are realized in Jesus Christ. Amen? So God has forgotten those things. These things are now in the past. Have you? And by the way, do you forget the failures of your fellow travelers? Or do you like to keep record of them? Pause for a moment and allow that conviction to settle in. Not conviction over your forgiven sin. Not conviction over the things that God has already wiped clean of the slate. Not conviction over those things, but conviction as to how we treat one another as brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. And I wasn't sure if I was gonna say this, but I'm gonna say it. Not in writing hurtful, unsigned, unaddressed, cowardly notes to someone on our ministry staff to tell them they're no good at what they do. Well, somebody wouldn't do that. Someone did this last week. And if it was you, all I can say is that's not how Christians roll. That's not what we do. By the way, this note that came wasn't written to me but it was a nasty note, in my estimation, written against someone on our ministry staff, and it was cowardly because it wasn't signed, it wasn't addressed, it just dropped off. And I'm sorry, that's not okay. You just all need to know, as senior pastor of this fellowship, I will never be okay with that kind of thing. I'm okay with a note where someone expresses concern and signs it and says, I'd like to get together and talk about it. Great, bring it on. I'm okay if someone says, Rick, I don't like your preaching style. Okay, let's have a conversation about that. That's fine. I'm okay if someone says, you know what, I called the church and Eva just wasn't nice to me. Well, go talk to Eva about that. And by the way, the note wasn't written to her. <laughs> but when I see things like this in the Christian community of faith, someone just fires off a nasty note to get something off their chest, stick a dagger in the back and hide in the bushes and not be known for what they did. I'm sorry, that's just not okay. And by the way, in this generation, can I just say adding LOL to whatever you say doesn't make it okay? I hate that, I, I really do. I, I get texts and, and you, you know, if someone says something kind of nasty or kind of accusatory, but at the end they say LOL, but it's cool. No, it's not, doesn't make it better. Now, I realize that 99.9% .9 of you have no idea what I'm talking about with this nasty little note, but one person does, and if you hear this this morning, shame on you for writing such a thing. 
We ought to be, as followers of Jesus Christ, the most loving, the most forgiving, the most merciful, the most genuine, other-centered, tender-hearted, helping each other along the journey, people on the face of the earth. We should be so different, everybody notices. That's what we are supposed to be, forgetting every failure along the way, not just ours, but those that we would count among people around us, and rather than, rather than walking on someone, coming alongside them and going, you know what, let's walk together because you're my sister, you're my brother, and I love you, and I love you more than my estimation of what you are currently doing. That's, that's being Jesus' people. Let's have memories like God. Let's, let's remember all that Jesus has done for us and let's forget all that others have done against us. Now that I've said that, I'm gonna forget it. Numbers 33, verse 37, picking up and going on. And I hope that didn't put a damper on your morning, but sometimes you just gotta address the truth. Verse 37, continuing the camp from Kadesh, or they journey from there to Mount Hor, Hill Mountain, at the edge of the land of Edom. And then Aaron the priest went up to Mount Hor at the command of the Lord and died there in the 40th year after the sons of Israel had come from the land of Egypt on the fourth day of the fifth month. Aaron was 123 years old when he died on Mount Hor. And that's the most detail of any stop that we've had so far since the Exodus detail in verses three and four. So we have the leaving and boldness from Egypt, the exiting of that land, and then we have Sight, 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 sight. All the way till we get to right here and Moses pauses to recognize Aaron's death. A few months later, after Aaron died, we find Moses, I believe, missing his brother. Pausing and recognizing, though every other stop is just a bullet point on this one, he has to pause and recognize Aaron. He loved Aaron. Think about that. Sometimes these, these biblical characters are so two-dimensional, we don't think about this. Moses loved Aaron. He had just lost his brother. In that same year, he lost his sister, Miriam. And even the mention of Aaron here is interesting to me because I think for Moses, the lost would have been profound. He didn't just lose a high priest. He didn't just lose a companion in travel. He lost his brother. And he pauses and recognizes it. Here's a tender truth from the travel log, and you might wanna jot this down, and I think I've given you three so far, so this would be number four. Grief is graciously expected on the journey. Grief is expected. That's important to note. Remember back at the head of the 40th year of the, of the journey, Numbers 20, verse 29, when all the congregation saw that Aaron had died, all the house of Israel wept for Aaron 30 days. That's what you do, and that is good to do. When there's grief on the journey and loss, all travel goes full stop and God recognizes the need. You don't just keep plowing on. Oh, well, we lost one, but we're going. No, you stop and you grieve. We often talk about around here the certainty of death. We all know it's gonna happen. The statistics are all in. And we talk about the joy of the kingdom and we talk about looking forward to life after death or after the rapture should we be called? But listen, grieving our losses in this world is a graciously expected thing. 
God gave us opportunity, gave us the emotion, the heart to grieve our losses. Why? Because it's a loss of relationship. God doesn't say, grieve that old dresser when it finally breaks. God doesn't say, grieve the car when you have to send it out to pasture, you know? He doesn't say, grieve those favorite tennis shoes or that favorite T-shirt that your wife finally says, enough already, throw it away. He says, grieve each other. You lose a loved one, you pause, and you grieve. And that's part of the journey. And This is so important to know. Here's the best comfort I can give you in loss. God gets it. God understands. And not just as a a divine being who obviously knows everything, God understands firsthand the sorrow of our temporary human losses. John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Sadly, we use that verse kind of as a, as a little bit of a joke about the most simple verse in the Bible to memorize. Jesus wept. That's the one Christopher wanted. I mentioned last week. Give me an easy verse, Dad. Let me do something like Jesus wept. Listen. It's a simple little verse, but it is so incredibly profound. Jesus, when Jesus wept, knew he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knew it was imminent. That's why he left. That's why he came late to the funeral, four days late, so that God could be glorified in the resurrection of Lazarus. He knew what he was coming to do. He's standing there ready to resurrect Lazarus, and Jesus wept in that moment. Why? John eleven thirty three 33 says, when Jesus therefore saw Mary's weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. See, he adored Mary and he loved Martha and he loved Lazarus. These were three of Jesus' favorite people based on what we can put together in the gospels. This is where he stayed when he went to Jerusalem with Lazarus and Martha and Mary over in Bethany on the other side of the Mount of Olives. These were his compadres, his friends, people that he could just relax around and be with, and he loved them all, and now one is gone, and the two sisters are weeping, and all the friends. No doubt there were others there, Jewish people who were friends of Jesus that he knew from Bethany, and they're all weeping. Everybody's upset. It moves Jesus, and we see him weeping, but I believe that the grief was all too personal for Jesus himself as well. John eleven thirty six. 36, the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. So Jesus wept. Not because he didn't know what he was about to do, not because Lazarus was dead and gone forever. He wept because Jesus had a heart, because Jesus had relationship with these people and with Lazarus himself. And so God tells us, allows for us to pause and grieve, not because we lack faith, but because we love like he does. That grief is an outpouring and a showing of our love. If we don't grieve, where's the love? So the pause on the journey to grieve is a good pause. Love, I'm gonna say this again, love must be the hallmark of our journey. So verse 40, now the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, in the land of Canaan, heard of the coming of the sons of Israel. Here in verse 40, we have another informative verse. Another verse with a little more information at this point than anything else other than the death of Aaron. And, we, and scholars wonder, why is this verse here? And what's the point of this? It doesn't mention the king of Arad taking captives. It doesn't 
mention the following victorious battle of the Israelites. It just mentioned that the king of Arad knew they were coming. So the point was not the captives and it wasn't the battle or the skirmishes. The point is very simply this. I believe this is here to remind us that the enemy knows you're coming. The enemy knows you're coming. King of Arad was made aware of this. Don't ever forget that Satan is a real existent spiritual being who does not want you to reach the promised land. He knows you're coming. This was especially poignant to me this week when we, or yesterday, really, when we got the letter in the mail saying we were good to go, set up a court date, and we're on our way to Ghana, and I realized the devil's not done trying to stop this thing. I've never seen him work harder in my life to stop something than the adoption of Christopher. Three years we've been at this, and I know others have been at adoption even longer than that, but it's been just fascinating to me to see the, the trips and turns and the twistings and to see the enemy trying to stop. There's something with this Christopher that's gonna mess us up. I don't know what it is. But I think God has something for this young man and for our family. So yesterday we got the letter, and like, yeah, this is great, and then I was looking over my sermon notes, enemy knows you're coming, and I'm like, oh. He knows. He couldn't beat us with bureaucracy, so he knows we're coming. And so I've just been praying, Lord, go before us. You know, go before us, prepare the way, protect us, provide for us, get us there and get us home. I just wanna be home. Lord, go before us, because the enemy knows you're coming. And that's a little different statement, I think, than a lot of times we say the, the enemy's fighting against you or the enemy's prowling around seeking to, you know, those he can devour and all of that. This is just, he's aware that you're on your way. He knows you're right around the bend, and he does not want you to see the promises of God. He doesn't want to see that fulfilled in your life. He sees you coming, so he'll tempt you. He will lie to you. He will oppress you. He will detour you. He'll steal from you. He will kill the things that matter to you. He'll destroy what you've built. All of this to discourage you and discourage me in the long, hot wilderness so that we'll give up or like Reuben Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh will settle for the here and now. That's all he wants. It's all he wants, just settle, back off. Stop your march. Don't head into the promises. And so the Bible says, do not give the devil an opportunity. Ephesians 4.27. Or Ephesians 6.11, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. The king of Arad saw Israel coming, and he schemed to catch them off guard. He attacked them unwitting. They weren't ready for the attack. See, he knew they were coming. They didn't know he knew they were coming. So he attacks, and he takes several of them captive. And in fact, back in chapter 21, verse 2, after the attack and several Israelites were taken captive, Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord heard the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them in their cities. Thus the name of that place is called Hormah, which is devoted to destruction. Which is interesting because when the people tried to fight on their own, they ended up Hormah, destroyed. But when they cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, Lord, go before us. Lord, look at what's happened. We devote ourselves to you. Then they destroyed the enemy. But the enemy knows you're coming. 
And I believe Numbers 33, verse 40 is here to remind God's people of that truth. So that, since we know he knows we're coming, that we can know he knows we're coming. And the Bible then says, therefore, submit to God. James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist. Stand up. Fight back. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But we can now add to that, seeking someone to devour, and he knows you're coming. So what do I do? Resist him, 1 Peter 5, 9. Firm in the faith, knowing that your same, the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And by the way, let me just say this to the church in general and to our fellowship. Tolerance of sin is not resistance. Saying that's okay, we're, that's not resisting the devil. That's inviting his work. Agreeing with our culture in the immorality that is so pervasive today, that is not standing up. Permissiveness is not perseverance. We draw a line in the sand and we say, no farther. We will not accept that as okay. We will not agree with that. We will not tolerate that kind of shameful immorality that is abhorrent to our God. Resist, push back, don't cave in. Verse 41, and then they journeyed from Mount Hor and camped at Zalmanah, which means shady place. And they journeyed from Zalmanah and camped at Punon, which means darkness. And that's interesting to me too because oftentimes it gets shady before it gets dark. That should be a clue to us in our spiritual lives. Something kind of shady going on, darkness is coming. Don't go that way. They journeyed from Punan and they camped at Obot, which means water skins. They journeyed from Obot and they camped at Aye Abarim at the border of Moab. Aye Abarim means, listen, ruins of the regions beyond. Ruins of the regions beyond. And that's significant, geographically as well as spiritually. Listen to this. Ruins of the region beyond, beyond what? Beyond the mountains. Ea Abarim, Ea is ruins. Abarim is, is regions beyond. The Abarim, this is a mountain range. You may recall this, uh, Bible students. It's a mountain range that is in Jordan today, on this mountain range, Mount Nebo, Mount Pisgah, where Moses would ascend to look into Israel. So you've got this mountain range, again, in, it's in Moab, but the land of Jordan today, middle of Jordan, and it's a dividing mountain range between Israel and then lands to the east. These mountains divide the east bank of the Jordan River from the regions beyond. That's why they're called Abarim. They, they are mountains that divide from the regions beyond out to the east. A direction, listen, a direction God did not want his people to go. Even has mountains there to discourage them from going that direction. And I think, okay, so they come to this place, Ea Abarim, ruins of the regions beyond. What if they had just drifted east a bit? Ruins. What if they had wandered that direction instead of west into the land of promise? What if they said, hey, wait a minute, our, our, our forefather Abram came from Ur of the Chaldees, let's go there. 
And we really want to get back to Abram's inheritance. Let's go back to where he originally came from, Ur of the Chaldeans, the Chaldeans, Babylon. What if Israel had come to Ea Abarim and said, hey, let's head east, young man. Wonder what's on the other side of the mountain. Wonder what's over there. I think I'll go that way. Even though God's saying, don't go that way. What if they had? And it's very simple to answer that. I think number six, if you're keeping track, wandering away from the promises is ruinous. It's ruinous, ruins of the regions beyond. Israel will only go this direction one time. You realize that? They're only gonna head east one time when they're taken into Babylonian captivity. That's the only time they cross these mountains and are taken off to the east. 70 years of captivity in Babylon. Of course, you may also recall this. While they were in Babylon, prophet Ezekiel was speaking, words of God, words of comfort. Prophet Jeremiah was to write a letter from God to his people and send it off to Babylon, and the letter included Jeremiah 29, verse 11, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me when you find me, when you search for me with all your heart. Even though they're in the ruinous place of Babylon where they never needed to be, where God never wanted them to be, God still has a plan. I'm gonna get you out. I'm gonna bring you back. But E.A. Abarim, the ruins of the regions beyond, verse 45. And then they journeyed from Ayim and they camped at Dibon Gad, Dibon Gad, which, by the way, uh, Ayim is short for ruins, and then Dibon Gad, that is wasting of Gad. And yes, that region, Dibon Gad, is the region that Gad would occupy when they settled, and it got named the Wasting of Gad. They journeyed from Dibon Gad, and they camped at Almon Dibletaim, which means concealing of the fig cakes, I don't know why. Maybe one of the kids was saying, Mom, where are the Fig Newtons? You're not having those now. So they named it Concealing of the Fig Cakes. And they journeyed from Almon Diblataim, and they camped in the mountains of Abarim before Nebo. Nebo means prophet. They journeyed from the mountains of Abarim, and they camped at the plains of Moab by the journey opposite Jericho. They camped by the Jordan from Bet Yeshimot, which means house of desolation, as far as Abel Shatim, which means meadow of the acacias in the plains of Moab. 42 sites. 42 sites. And again, so much can be drawn out of all these things, but from Egypt to the Sinai, and then from Sinai to Kadesh, and then from Kadesh to the plains of Moab, and all points in between, God has been faithful. He's been with his people, Israel, just as he promised. Psalm 77 reads, verse 19, your way was in the sea and your paths in the mighty waters and your footprints may not be known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. I love that statement, your footprints may not be known. We may be completely unaware that God's right there, that he's leading through the sea. That one probably a little more obvious, you know, as they're walking through giant walls of water. But so many other places where they wouldn't even have considered that God was there and yet he was there, where they didn't see his footprints in the sand and yet he was there. 
So that's the only problem with that old poem, Footprints in the Sand. Some of you have that, you know, little plaque in your bathrooms at home or something, you know, where God's carrying you, the footprints thing, and walking with God. You know the old poem. The only problem with it is you don't always see his footprints. The poem says, when you only see one set of footprints, that's when I carried you, and that's sweet and touching and emotional, but the reality is there are times in my life there are no footprints at all. That's when I know he's carrying me because he's not leaving footprints. He's just moving straight forward. Your footprints may not be known, but that doesn't mean you're not here, leading us through, walking us through, directing us all the way. This is the travel log of Israel. And more truths, again, are apparent here that I encourage you to search out on your own. But one last thing. Note this as we close, verse 50. Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho, saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when you cross over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their molten images and demolish all their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and live in it, for I have given the land to you to possess it. You shall inherit the land by lot according to your families. To the larger you shall give more inheritance and to the smaller you shall give less inheritance. Wherever the lot falls to anyone, that shall be his. You shall inherit according to the tribes of your fathers. Note that. When you, he says, then you. And then you shall, you shall, you shall, you shall. When you get into the land, then you shall do these things. You shall receive your inheritance. Seventh and final thing to note, look to the certainty of our inheritance. You shall go into the land. You shall, my friends, listen, when you are raptured by Jesus, then you shall praise and worship and love him forever. When you, then you. This is a statement of absolute certainty. When I question, when I wonder, when the way gets long and hot and dry and I'm thirsty, the Lord says, oh, you're, you're gonna love it. You're gonna love it. What's coming, what I have prepared for you, you know that land in Israel is everything. So when we talk about an inheritance, we're not just talking about some sum of money tucked away in the bank or a, a little cabin out on one of the islands. We're talking about something forever. By the way, a cabin out on the islands would be fantastic if anyone wants to leave me one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying. No, no, I'm saying that we, you know, we think of inheritance in a completely different way. Jewish people, do you realize that in Israel today you cannot buy land? You can't. You can lease it for 99 years. But you can't buy land in Israel. You can only lease it. Why? Because it is already an inheritance of someone else. That is recognized. It was recognized when the, when the Jewish people came back into the land and when the Jewish state was reestablished, well, this is the inheritance of our forefathers, so we can't really buy the land, but we can inherit it. And so you can lease it. 99 years at a time. Here's my point. When I'm camped out among the palms or the thorns or, or, or in the bread bowl or at the graves of greed, do you know what I tend to see? I tend to see palms, thorns, bread, graves, and greed. 
That is my, my vision is shaded. I see temporary shade over here. I see stickers there in the bushes. Or I see food. Or I see mortality. Or I see sin. And that's what we see, the discouragement of the daily grind when our heads are down. God is always lifting our heads up and saying, look at your inheritance. It is promised. It is guaranteed. Look at all the sights. Remember how I brought you through. But now, when you, then you. Now, we're going forward, gang. So I don't look to all that lies behind. I press on to what lies ahead. And we're right back the same place. Isn't it amazing how often we land here in this church? Our inheritance, the kingdom, that which is before us, God continues to lift our heads to look at that to encourage us to go. Don't stop here. Like we talked about last week, don't settle in the plains of Moab. Peter said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's wonderful. That's fantastic. Why, Peter? To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time, ready to be revealed at the last time. Any moment now, we will be Kadesh. We will be holy. We will have arrived out of this world and into the place of holiness as God has finished the work. I know I make this point a lot. I get that. Doesn't make it any less true. Look to the certainty of your inheritance. Consider the journey, yes, but look forward to the certainty of your inheritance. And I can think of no, nothing more favorite of mine in this travelogue. But recognizing, as we, as we read it all through, Recognizing it's written by one who now knows the way through the wilderness. Moses knows the way. He's been there, done that. He, he, he knows all of these sites. He, he knows the route. You could take this, and if you were Moses back in the day or one of the children of Israel, you could backtrack and follow the whole thing all the way back to Ramses. I don't know why you would, but you could. And that's the great thing about reading travel logs of other people. They help you find the way. They help you find the way. That's the word of God, this travel log. And it's, it's not just a travel log for this life. This is the travel log of Jesus Christ, who is the only one who truly knows the way, who said in John 12, verse 12, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And he said this, listen, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who has descended from heaven the Son of Man, he knows the way. How do you get to heaven? I can't tell you. Well, I can, Jesus. He knows the way. I can't give you the map. I can just say, Jesus, he knows the way. Jesus knows the way. He says, I came forth from the Father, John 16, 28. I have come into the world. I am leaving the world again, and I'm going back to the Father. He's been there, been here, gone back, coming again, and he knows the way. Because, see, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Let's pray.
Father, thank you so much for taking us through this, this journey, 40 years in an hour, pretty good. Thank you, Lord, for revealing truth to us in these words, and I ask that you will encourage faith this morning. Remind us of the things that we have learned, Lord, and draw our attention to our Lord Jesus and to our calling home and to our great inheritance that you have determined for us. Father, with Israel, for the smaller tribes, they got a smaller inheritance. For the larger tribes, they got a larger inheritance. And I pray, Father, you'll give us the faith for a large inheritance. The faith to do whatever it is you've called us to do in this world and, and not to give up and not to weary in the journey. But Lord, as we come close, oh Lord, may we, may we have a heightened anticipation and a greater excitement. But more than any of that, I wanna ask, Lord, that we would have a deeper love for you and for one another than we have ever had before. That in these last days, our love would not wane, it would increase dramatically so that we might truly be the people of God. In Jesus' name. Amen.